left off a couple weeks ago, so let's do a quick recap. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I know we tend to take that verse for granted, but do you realize what that would have meant to a first century Jew? When you think about this, their entire life and their entire structure was based upon that no matter what they did, they were never right. No matter what they did. Every year, they'd have to atone. Every week, every day. They had all these, these things they had to go through in order to be atoned for, have their sins covered, to take care of these things. And, and here we are, we read a verse like this, and we're like, man, that's sweet. We don't really take into consideration how powerful that verse is, what it means to be new, what it means to be whole, to no longer have to go through some of this stuff. And Romans chapter 8 verse 6 says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is in enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. It cannot be. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you realize that when it talks about spirits versus flesh, that it is talking about saved versus unsaved. And there are times that it's talking about that you can be walking spiritually and you can be walking in the flesh. Even if you're a believer. And when we talk about this to be spiritually minded versus carnally minded, it's to think as the way that God would have you think. To have this biblical worldview, this, this framework of which we process the information around us, to say, I don't care what's going on here, and I don't care even what thoughts are in my mind. I only care what God has said on any subject. It doesn't matter what we face. You guys realize that we are expecting more and more tumultuous times as we get further and further along? That the day is coming in which God is going to take us all home. And the world is going to be in utter chaos. And if you think it's ugly now, you ain't seen nothing yet. And this is why it is so imperative that we not be carnally minded. That we be spiritually minded. But we have allowed the enemy to creep in and take advantage of us. We've allowed him to creep in and control us and we don't even realize it. We don't even realize it. We, we have been talking about ad nauseum of, of the fact of how we move in this world. Let me give you an example of this. In a godly home, who is the head of the household? If you say the man, you said it wrong. It's the husband. Why does that matter? Because you don't have to be a husband and a wife. You can be a boyfriend and a girlfriend today, right? That's why we talk about relationships, sexual relationships. Is God ordained it to be between man and woman? No, he didn't. He ordained it to be between husband and wife. You see, we have allowed the world to dictate how we think. We respond that way, but we don't think there's a huge difference. Huge difference. But we think we've got it all figured out. We have got an arrogance in the body of Christ today that we just think we've got it all together. We don't have to worry about it anymore. We can just go on through life. I know what's right. Don't tell me I'm wrong. I can't be impacted by the enemy. I can't be impacted by the world. I've got it all figured out. That is a lie. There is a reason that Scripture has gone through so much to make sure that we understand that we are in a battle. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, it says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. I beg that you, when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence, but I wish I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. 
for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You know, if we just did that last part, we'd get a lot further along. But here's the thing. We have an arrogant church today. We've got a church where believers are just like, nope, I, none of that stuff ever affects me. We think that we're just walking around all high and mighty and stuff like that. There is a reason that Paul wrote this. That our response must be a biblical one. And many times it's not. Many times we respond in the flesh without even realizing we're doing it. Do you realize that believers today can be impacted by gossip? Yep. Do you realize that when you allow offense in, that you are impacted by the enemy? And we let that drive us, and we let that eat us alive, and we let that just grab a hold of us, and we're like, no, I can go find something better. I don't need that person in my life anymore, whatever. Whatever the case may be. Do you realize that Matthew 18 is specifically talking about what happens when a believer offends you? And how to handle it, and yet we don't? I mean, there's a reason that all of this is here. Somehow, the church today thinks we are impervious to any of this, that this can't affect us, that I can just go through life. I can go to church, do my thing, but I'm high and mighty and spiritual, and I don't need all that other stuff because I've got this all figured out. The second you get there is the second you're in trouble, and we've got to be beyond that. So as we've looked at this, we begin to look at these four questions. Who is God? Who am I in relationship with God? And how do I worship Him? And who is my enemy? We've looked at the spiritual warfare aspect against uh, how it really is versus how we thought it was. Because you understand that the battle is won. There is no longer an arm wrestling match between Jesus and Satan. That's already been taken care of. One arm wrestling, but you know what I mean. It's already been taken care of. So if it's been taken care of, then why do I need to do what Ephesians 6 says, where it says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Why do I need to do that if it's already been defeated? Because he is defeated, but we still walk in this world. We don't war according to the flesh. We war spiritually. And what I wanted you guys to begin to understand is that there are three areas in which the enemy moves. And this is how he trickles in. The first is in an individual basis. You'll start getting thoughts as such of, well, you don't need to go to church today because you had a rough week. You just need to take the day off. You don't need to read your Bible today. You don't need to pray today. Oh, man, that preacher, he's just teaching the same stuff over and over again. Aren't you tired of hearing that? It's that kind of stuff individually. Or that individual maybe is offended by the pastor or somebody in a church. And I'm talking about a local congregation. And so they allow that offense. It doesn't even have to be somebody in church. just somebody in general. They allow that offense to foster and just get worse and worse. And the enemy's got a hold of them then. Because they didn't take that thought captive immediately. But then what happens is they go and they begin to spread it to a group. A group of individuals that will make up a portion. That could be a church. That could be an organization. It could be a lot of different things. And then ultimately to an area. And we're going to talk about that today. But let's recap because we talked about this group aspect. So when it says to put on the whole armor of God. That you can stand against the wiles of the devil. That is... Hello, hello. There we go. Hey, all right. Not that I'm not loud enough, but they like to record it. So anyway, but we talk about how an individual can impact a group and what a group impact can be. Understanding that when he attacks, the methods of which he goes is always in the mind. We think about these attacks as physical attacks. You see an example in Job of a physical attack, but it really wasn't a physical attack. Because as you study that out and you begin to read Job, 
what Job says there, the thing that I feared the most has now come upon me. That means it started up here for him. He always feared losing everything. That's where it started. Where it ended was him losing everything and God ultimately restoring him. So we have to get back to this aspect of what is it that impacts an individual? What is it that impacts a group? Bad individual ideas will lead to bad group ideas. Think politics, right? They all cash their brains in. So we talked about this, and I showed you an example of this. And and to get there, we had to talk about the four messianic miracles, the cleansing from leprosy, the casting out a deaf and dumb spirit, the healing of a birth defect, and the raising the dead after three days. Those four questions, those were four litmus tests of when Messiah came, only he could do, only he could perform because of a various amount of reasons. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we've talked about it. But in John 10.10, we use this as an example. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And that has always been given credit to the devil that he's the thief and he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And as I showed you, if you go back in his context, who was the thief? It was the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees would not declare him Messiah. And the reason they wouldn't declare him Messiah is because he did not fit what they thought he should look like. He did not teach their law. He did not follow their customs. He healed on the Sabbath. He must be a sinner. And so because of that, they put things in place that if anybody declared him Messiah, they'd be cut off from the synagogue and possibly even killed. You see, they stole eternal life from people. The effect of that on the nation of Israel is still felt to this day. In Luke chapter 19, verse 37, as Jesus is going in to Jerusalem, he says, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, you rebuke your disciples. And he answered said to them, I tell you that if they should keep silent, the stones would cry out. And as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, enclose you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, this was the moment that Jesus declared Jerusalem was going to fall, and it did. In 70 AD, this was prophetic. But why did that happen? Imagine if the Pharisees had not stood in the way. What would have transpired? What would have happened? What would have been different? The effects of those decisions still impact the Jewish people to this day. And the day's coming where it's going to be a day of reckoning, as we know, with the um, Antichrist and all this other stuff. You see, we've got to understand something. is that all of those decisions didn't happen overnight. It was impact, little here, little there. We saw how Peter was uh, deceived by the devil. We saw how Judas was deceived by the devil. Saw all the miracles, saw everything happen, yet still, how has Satan entered your heart? We see it as other people. You guys, that still happens today. You are not impervious to it. I do not care how long you have been a believer. And I do not care what you think you know or how smart you think you are or how spiritual you happen to be. You are still impervious to this and it still can happen to you. That is why we have to be on guard. But I want to talk about this last part. This area aspect. This can be geographic in nature. 
where you go into an area that is very blighted, perhaps. Economically blighted. They could be spiritually blinded. blinded. They could be, there could be health issues that are going on. I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen there. And many times we just think, well, if, they, if the governments would just do this or the people would just do that or if only they knew. But there are examples where we have seen the power of God move in an area, break a stronghold, and completely change a place. What's that place down there? Um, oh, my God, with the giant vegetables. What's it? Say that really loud. That place. Here's a place that had more bars than it had anything else. Completely blighted. Revival broke out there. And the whole place shifted. They got to the point where they didn't need police anymore. And they got to the point, they were growing these giant vegetables. These carrots are the size of my forearm. And that's great if you like carrots. But I mean, it completely changed the place. The Spirit of God broke a stronghold that was over that place. Well, how did that stronghold get there? It was over time. And I want to show you guys something today. I'm going to show you this in Scripture. We're going to kind of lay the foundation for this today. We're going to dig into this a little deeper later. But here's the thing. You have to understand that there is a part of Scripture where there were, let's call them angelic beings that were placed over areas as a result of Genesis chapter 10 and the Table of Nations, the Tower of Babel, all of that stuff is intertwined here. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, flip there if you've got your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. Now, Deuteronomy is Moses' kind of last sermon to the Israelites before they're going into the promised land. He's getting ready to die. He's laying it out there. He's like, I want you guys to be prepared. So he's laying everything. He recaps a whole bunch of stuff. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15 says, take careful heed to yourselves. Now, stop. When that is written, that means pay very close attention to what? Yourself. For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, and the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. So stop. What does he say? When you go over into the promised land, take careful consideration because you are going to be tempted to do this. And did that happen? Yes. Did they heed much of what Moses had to say? No. Otherwise, the Old Testament would be about half of what it is if they just listened. So he's warning them up front, verse 19, take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and what's the next part? All the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan, but you shall cross over and possess the good land. So take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now what happened here? The first thing is, he said, do not make an idol of, your, of anything that you have seen that's been created. Anything is rounded of you. Then he goes into the second part. Take heed, lest you look up to the heavens, and you see the sun, 
the moon, and the stars. Are those the three things we see? Yep, but he throws in a fourth. All the host of heaven. What is that? It is, bear with me, it's all the host of heaven. It's all the things that are there, these created angelic beings. But what does he say? You feel driven to worship them and to serve them. Did they worship the sun? Some did. Did they worship the moon? Some did. Did they worship stars? Some did. But what about the host of heaven? Some did. And we've talked about this before. But what's he say after that? Which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. They've been given to the peoples. But the Lord has taken you, Israelites, out of Egypt as an inheritance as you are to this day. So what he's showing here, and again, this is having a biblical worldview and understanding this, is that when he separated the nations, we'll see this again, he took as an inheritance for himself, God called Abraham, but the rest of the people, he separated out, and it seems as if there were these watchers placed over these. And when you look up at them, don't worship them, don't serve them. They were to be pointing towards God. Now let's look at Deuteronomy 32. We're going to start in verse 1 because I want you to catch a little bit of the context that's going on. We're still in Deuteronomy, which means what? Moses is forewarning the people. All right? Verse 1, give ear, O heaven, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops of the tender herb, and as showers on the grass, for I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. What's he doing? He's ascribing the character of God. Everything he says is true. Everything he does is justice. He is upright and righteous. Verse 5, they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord? O foolish and unwise people, is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. So now he's going back. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nation. When he separated the sons of Adams, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. When did that take place? In Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. He separated them. Geographically, they go out on their own. Verse 9. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. So we see a separation. You have them separated, boundaries put. Remember, they're split up geographically. If you've been coming on Wednesday nights, you learn you can actually trace where the people with, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, where they went, the people groups and how they moved and stuff. Somebody way smarter than I did all of that homework. I did not come up with that. So according to the table of nations in Genesis 10, there are 70 nations. And when read in light of Deuteronomy 32, this would equal about 70 sons of God. And as you study other texts outside of Scripture, they in fact state that there were 70 sons of God. Ugaritic texts and other texts at that time frame will talk about this. So in Genesis 10, you have the table of nations. It mentions 70 nations split up. In chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel, which is when they were split up and the boundaries established. In chapter 12, you have the calling of Abraham. God separating to himself a group, a people. These guys were to be in covenant with Yahweh. Fair enough? You guys see where I'm going. Deuteronomy 32 again. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nation, he separated the sons of Adam. Who were the sons of Adam? 
everybody. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. So again, we see here that there is a separation of the people group. It doesn't come right out and necessarily say in this moment that he placed these watchers over, but it implies it in several places in Scripture. Why do I say that? Well, let's look at Exodus chapter 18. I want you guys to pick up on a trend here. Exodus chapter 18, verse 10. And Jethro said, and Jethro being Moses' father-in-law, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Now, does he just make some arbitrary statement? Jethro was convinced that Yahweh is greater than what? All the other gods. What I have told you before, these people were not just blindly following just these dumb idols and these like, oh, let's just make this. There was a spirit connected to these things. These were not unintelligent people. And I realize that it gets taught that way a lot. These were incredibly smart. If you go back to the, just the technology and the skills and the way that they could get around, we can't operate around without GPS nowadays. They travel halfway across the world in a boat and look at a star and like, yeah, let's go that way. It's a lot different. He, Yahweh, is greater than all the gods. Why? Because they behave proudly, but yet he was above them. See, Jethro is now convinced that God is God. Look at Exodus chapter 12. You have to understand something. What was the point of the ten plagues? Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You do not have to put judgment on something that doesn't exist. What's he doing? This is the final plague where it was the killing of the, uh, the firstborn animal son, everything. Why was that significant? Well, who was the son of God at that point? It was Pharaoh's son. Pharaoh was a God. If you go and look... All of the ten plagues has multiple gods that that came against. They could not stop what Yahweh was doing. That's why Jethro was convinced. Numbers 33 verse 4 says the same thing. For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them. Also, on their gods, the Lord had executed judgment. Again, if these things do not exist, God does not have to put judgment on them. Because they just don't exist. Was he simply trying to convince the Egyptians? No. He was setting his people free. That's what he was doing. So you have to understand that having this in the back of your mind, there were these angelic beings, they're called watchers in other parts of Scripture, where they were over these nations, and yet the people began to worship them. Just like Genesis 6, where the angels took for themselves wives, that wasn't God's intent. But just like everybody else, they too have free will. Now look at Psalm 82. Watch this. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, God, that's Elohim, stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, also Elohim. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Who is he talking to? It's the other gods. Let me read this again. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly? 
and show partiality to the wicked. So there was a judging that they were to be doing. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free from them the hand of the wicked. They do not know, and nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said you are gods, and are all of you are children of the Most High. But you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Now that's a provocative statement at the end. Because at that point, who are God's people? The Israelites. He says he's going to inherit all nations. But who's he talking to? I said you are God's, Elohim. That's the word. And all of you are children of the Most High. That's a true statement. But you will die like men. Do you have to tell men that they'll die like men? No. There's a destruction that's going to come upon them. What's this talking about? He is a God who judges among the gods. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. These are statements that we've made, but we've never really thought them through. He is above all. You see this in several places. In Exodus chapter 15, it's the song of Moses. And watch what he says here. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, now before we go there, somebody should have taught them a little better on how to write a song because none of this rhymes. But why do you think they sang this? This is something that they would remember. Why did the early church have creeds? You ever thought about that? The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all of these creeds. We don't like them today because we just kind of stand up and recite them. We don't think of what they mean. But the creeds themselves was a remembrance to a people of doctrinal beliefs that didn't have Scripture readily available to them. They didn't carry around a Bible all the time. Most of them couldn't get it in their own language, let alone own or afford one. So they had these creeds that they would do. These songs are the same thing. It's the same stuff they do today. By men and, you guys remember that? You remember it. It's the song. You guys remember the alphabet? How do you remember it? The song. So it's the same thing. They would use these things to help them remember. Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its riders he has thrown into the sea. So what are they referencing? They're referencing the Exodus event and the Red Sea crossing. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's Yahweh. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the water were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied in them. I will draw my sword. My hand will, shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You see this trend? There is this idea that God is here, but there's these lesser God. It's the pantheon. If you study out all, like Greek mythology and stuff like that, you'll begin to connect dots of what these people will worship, and you'll see names of these things in other literature that reference back to something as, along the line of a, a demonic God of some sort. 
This is not arbitrary, but it's not taught today. So it seems weird and out there. It's not weird. It's biblical. Well, we have to be careful with it. So who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? What had just happened? He had judged the gods of Egypt. And what did they say? I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide. I will draw my sword. What does that sound like? We'll see that here in a minute. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23. It says, Then I pleaded with the Lord at the time, at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? There isn't one. But he wasn't referencing fake things. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below you like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You're seeing the antithesis between Yahweh and the other gods. They were worshiping created beings. The very thing that Moses warned them against. Do not look up and see all the hosts of heaven and feel driven to worship them. They are created. Psalm 97 verse 9, for you Lord are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Psalm chapter 95 verse 3, for the Lord is, great, is the great God and the great king above all gods. And we could go on and on and on. Do you get this? You see, this wasn't just random, arbitrary statements they were making a case for. They were flat out saying, you are here, and these created beings that these other people are worshiping are below you because nobody is like my God. You guys see that? It's important you understand that because that gets into how areas are influenced and controlled. Have you ever wondered, as an example, why is it so contentious in Israel? What's there that's so great? The answer is nothing. There's nothing there. There's nothing that would draw people there. They are not have vast amounts of oil and gold and all this other stuff. But yet there's constant battle. There's something spiritual that's going on there. You go to the other parts of the world and go into places and you see this constant, um, I guess, negative energy. I don't know how else to say it. There's just these suppressed people that live in constant fear and constant trembling, and there's nothing they can do to get out of it. It's like they can't get out of their own way. Why is it like that? Why is it different here than it is there? Is it just because we're smarter? No. The foundation of our nation was different. So I want to jump into Isaiah chapter 14. And I've read some of this before, but I want you to see this in light of this, because again, this is what we're talking about. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 3 says, It shall come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. Okay, well, who was a king of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar was a king of Babylon, right? And there were others. So it doesn't say who he is. It just says you're going to take this proverb up against the king of Babylon. Well, let's go and read what it says. How the oppressor has ceased. The golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke. He who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you. And the cedars of Lebanon sing, since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. Hell 
from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. So this doesn't sound very good for this dude. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nation. So now everybody is against this guy. They're excited to see him. Verse 10, they all shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Okay. Verse 11, your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread over you and worms cover you. Again, not sounding good so far. But let's go to verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Who's he been talking to? He's the king of Babylon. But how can he be the king? This is a spiritual being. This is the point. How you were cut to the ground, you who have weakened the nation. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also ascend in the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Do you remember what we read a little bit ago? That I will go after, I will conquer, I will... Sounds very similar. Yet you should be cut, brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed his cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house, but you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall be named. Prepare the slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with the cities. I mean, it gets pretty apparent who he's talking to. Now, what I don't know is was there a man involved in this as well? It's possible. But we certainly know that the shining one, which is what Lucifer means, is who this judgment was aimed towards. And how he'll be cut down to the ground. You see, he was the one that was running Babylon. He was the king of Babylon. It's over a nation. Let's look at another one. We're almost done. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God. So who are we talking to? The prince of Tyre. Because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God's. In the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. Now, again, this is God speaking to the prince of Tyre. He says that you are a man, you are not a God, but he puts himself up there. Why would that be? That's because, remember, if they're Caesars, Pharaohs, all of these guys, what did they believe? They were gods. That's why Pharaoh's son was the son of God. Verse 3, Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you still say before him who slays you, I am a God? 
But you shall be a man and not a God in the hand of him who slays you. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And just so there's no confusion, the aliens is not little green men from outer space. They're not coming down with their phasers and shooting them. So what are we dealing with? We're dealing with the man who has elevated himself and says that I am a God. And that these people will worship me. And he's very wise. He has amassed for himself wealth. And he's created all these things. And God said, I am going to set the stranger against you. And they will come and they will destroy you. And will you still look at them and say, I am a God? That's the prince attire. But what's the next part say? Moreover, verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Okay. So we're dealing with the prince. Well, who is the prince? It's always the son of the king. Okay? Not complicated. Thus says the Lord, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your temples and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Now we've got a problem, because whoever this king is was apparently in Eden. And that was a long time, even by biblical ages. They didn't live this long. We're talking like 1,500, 2,000 years, something like that. I didn't do the math, but it's something along those lines. So we know something here. Whoever he's talking to was in Eden, and it can't be a man because men don't live this long. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. What's a cherub? It's an angel. I establish you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuary by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a whore. You shall be no more forever. Who are we talking about? And the enemy. He was the anointed cherub who was set apart. But he was called the king of the tire, king of Tyre, which means that the prince was the man king was the power behind him. The prince is always the son of the king. You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? You are of your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. So you guys see how geographically speaking, these are just a couple of examples, we can see where there is something over these nations that controls things. Do you think in any way that that's still not true. That that's changed somehow. You see, if you believe that individually you're impervious to the attacks of the enemy, then you are wrong. You're not impervious. You have everything you need to stand against them. And then a group of people who is a bunch of individuals collectively come up with bad ideas or whatever the case may be. We're talking about people in power. They don't have to be people in power. They can be your average Joe that get offended or something like that and go and start causing a stink and causing problems. But they don't see it. They're always right. They're always doing the Lord's work. I have watched people split churches feeling that they were doing the Lord's work. And it's usually over something stupid. So you have these groups and then you have this area which is covered. Now, that in and of itself 
when you understand that, is imperative. But the most important piece of this that you have to get, and this is where we're going, is that while you're not impervious to it, you have every tool necessary and an expectation by God to utilize what you've been given to stand against it. You cannot walk in this age without that armor on. You cannot walk in this age without knowing who you are in relationship to God. Because all of that matters. And there is nothing the enemy can bring against you that will win against you that you have not first allowed to get in in some capacity. So we're going to begin to transition into the spiritual warfare side and the authority that we have as a believer and the gifts and tools that God has given us. You're going to hear some stories, and you're going to hear some testimonies, and you're going to hear things that perhaps you kind of just played off and never thought about. But you guys, we do not walk in fear in any way. We walk with authority and the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that as we study it out, Lord, that you reveal this truth to us. That your word is true and that we walk around not blind and not, not knowing what's going on, Lord, but you have revealed all things to us, Lord, and that we can have an understanding of what you have said and what you've left for us and how we are to behave, how we are to act, and how we are to walk, Lord. That we don't walk around without the tools necessary, but you have equipped us with everything that we need to carry out your mission in this earth, Lord. That you did not put us here to simply exist, to sit at home and watch TV and talk to people on occasion, Lord. But you have put us on this earth as a purpose to serve you, to honor you in every part of our life, and to be about your work. And so, Lord, I thank you that you are equipping us and giving us everything that we need. And you're quickening our heart in a way that we will be on mission for you each and every day. So, Lord, I thank you for all that you've done and continue to do, that you're glorified in every aspect of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, have a great week. We will see you all tonight.